That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Great America Show. Lou Dobbs here. It's great to have you with us. The Marxists are marching. More than 20 left-wing Antifa terrorists charged in Atlanta after they violently clashed with police officers charged for storming the Atlanta Law Enforcement Training Center. The terrorists threw Molotov cocktails at the police. They torched construction equipment. The Daily Mail reports that among those arrested was an attorney for the hard-left Southern Poverty Law Center, who is charged now with domestic terrorism. There are other instances of violence that are raising questions about who's behind months of protests and attacks on the police training center there in Atlanta, and about who is shooting up power substations in all parts of the country and burning down food processing plants as well. No one's taken blame for the targeted violence, at least not yet. Attorney General Merrick Garland was in western Ukraine over the weekend, there to replace yet another Ukrainian anti-corruption prosecutor. Russia has launched a new offensive against eastern Ukraine. According to reports, Russia is throwing thousands more of its troops into that assault now underway. A Ukrainian military official telling Foreign Policy magazine that Russia has moved up almost 3,000 artillery systems 800 multi-rocket launchers, almost 2,000 tanks, and 400 jet fighters, all going into the fight that is intensifying by the day. A brutal war that is about to get even more brutal and deadly. Our guest today is Ambassador Robert O'Brien. He's former presidential envoy for hostage affairs. He served as President Trump's national security advisor. Ambassador O'Brien, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Let's begin with Russia's escalation of its assault on Ukraine and where Russia's more than one year long war on Ukraine goes from here. Well, thanks, Lou. And again, congratulations with all the success of the uh, the podcast and the show. It's uh, it's great to listen to you and, and it's terrific to be on with you this morning. So th- that's the, probably the number one question I get when I'm out speaking and uh, doing Q&A and folks are really concerned about what's happening. and. Uh, and where we are with this this war. So I think to unpack it, it's important to think you know, to talk about a couple of critical issues. Uh, number one, this is a war of aggression by Russia against Ukraine. It's a war of conquest, of subjugation. And it's something we really haven't seen you know, since really World War One. Of course, Hitler tried to do it in World War Two. But since World War One, the idea that an empire or a nation could could conquer its neighbors and, and to use a real estate term, Get good title to uh, to the property it conquered uh, has not been a thing in, in international law or in international affairs. And but Putin has brought it back. And so I, you know, number one, we want to commend the brave Ukrainians who are fighting for their freedom and their independence. And and I'd like to contrast them a little bit with the wars that we've seen recently in Afghanistan or Iraq, where Americans were asked to do the fighting for folks' freedom or liberty. Here, the Ukrainians are just asking for our, our help and our supplies and, and for us to be the arsenal of democracy. But it's Ukrainians who are doing the fighting and dying, and, uh, and I commend them for that. Number two is uh, 
China's watching this. I mean, everything that we deal with today, Louis, you know very well, and and have you you've been on this. You know, you were on China before most people back in the in the TV days twenty years ago. China is our existential threat, and China's watching this to see if Russia can get away with Ukraine. Because if they if it does, China will try and get away with you with taking Taiwan, which would have devastating uh, effects on the U.S. And one can only think of uh, of Crimea uh, and the taking of Crimea by Vladimir Putin uh, in 2014 with President Obama in office. Uh, there is always the suggestion that the Biden term is the third term of the Obama administration. Uh, this looks like a replay, does it not? Well, look, it's the same folks staffing the administration for the most part. So there, there is some, I, I guess, some truth to it now. You know, Biden and Obama are different. I think Obama was was much weaker when it came to foreign policy. Uh, and uh, look, the, the the Ukraine situation in, in 2014 was a, a real disaster. We grew up, Lou, in the in the Ronald Reagan era of peace or strength. Or, and we can recall just a couple of years ago the the America First era of Donald Trump, where where our adversaries wouldn't dare uh, take those kind of chances. But what what happened after Russia invaded Ukraine the first time in 2014 and took much of Donbass and, and Crimea. Uh, Obama sent them Gatorade and MREs and blankets. Uh, that that was our response. And so it's it's little you know a little wonder that you see the Russians thinking that as soon as Biden took office and can and canceled our Keystone pipeline, but then gave them the go ahead for the the Nord Stream two pipeline. We had the humiliating withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan, and then you know we're, we're, the Russians were told they could do a minor incursion in Ukraine that would be okay. You know, why wouldn't the Russians assume, based on past history with the Obama administration, that they could go in and take Ukraine? And uh, thank goodness in the Trump administration, we got the Ukrainians the, the 600 Javelin missiles, the anti-tank missiles, which blunted the armor attack, the, the initial attack. And I, look, I'll compliment the Biden administration on one thing. They, they did rally and and they did, you know, get equipment and material and, and weapons to the Ukrainians once they, after Zelensky turned down the offer of the helicopter right out of town and said he was staying and fighting. The, the Biden folks recalibrated and they did get material and, and, and support to Ukraine and, and I compliment them on that. But again, we shouldn't take credit for what's happening in Ukraine. It's the Ukrainians who get the credit for fighting off the Russians, you know, granted using our equipment. And and the major power conflict is, is coming into stark relief as well uh, in uh, in the Russian war against, the, as you call it, the war of conquest uh, against Ukraine. Now, Xi Jinping is trying to play, at least on a stage, the part of an intermediary and uh, mediator uh, in, in bringing together uh, Ukraine and Russia around an idea of peace uh, at some point. Uh, we are, we, the Biden administration is actively trying to to dissuade uh, the UK, uh, France, and Germany uh, of any participation and discussion with the Chinese on this issue. Uh, this is, I, I, to me, again, an administration that is is not agile. It's not uh, particularly uh, talented when it comes to foreign policy. That's just my judgment. Well, look, it's a perception of weakness that the international community has of this administration. It's, it, it doesn't mean that America is fundamentally weak, and it, it doesn't even mean that the the you know some of the folks in the Biden administration are, are weak. But it's the appearance of weakness that's so provocative. And, and this Chinese peace deal is is a classic example. I mean, I was on the phone with our uh, 
Rick Rennell, our former director of national intelligence and uh, an ambassador to Germany recently. And, and Rick and I were talking about how did we cede the, the peace uh, initiative to the Chinese? The Chinese put together a peace initiative that's basically a surrender by Ukraine to the Russians. Uh, so there's nothing good in it for Ukraine. And, and so, you know, the Germany and the UK and France should not get involved in a Chinese deal. But why didn't the US come out first with our principles for a peace deal? And maybe the Russians wouldn't have accepted it. They probably wouldn't have come to the table. I, I don't think Putin's going to come to the table under any circumstances unless there's an unconditional surrender at this point by Ukraine. At some point, he will when he realizes he, his, his goals can't be accomplished and if the Ukrainians get some advantage in the coming spring offensive. But but right now, he's not coming to the table. But why wasn't the U.S. out first with, with our principles for a peace deal? take the initiative and, and make it you know, and set the agenda ourselves. Instead, now we're playing to the Chinese agenda. And although it's a it's a fake offer and it's a, it's a fake peace deal, you know, the, the Chinese have the at least the world's attention. And as you noted, they've got the initiative uh, on the peace front. And and that's something that in the old days, America would have always been out there first. So, uh, again, you know, maybe if we had a do over uh, and I'm sure the Biden folks feel this way, they won't admit it, but I'm sure they feel if they had a do over, they would have tried to get out in front of the Chinese uh, using our allies as leverage and, and at least laying down our own marker rather than playing off the Chinese marker. Um, and the, the degree to which we're doing so is also, I think, if, if we look back on this, uh, and I think uh, most people may not appreciate the fact that there was a run up to this war that started on February 24th, uh, uh, more than a year ago now, uh, it, it the the Biden administration knew what was happening. They were being their own intelligence agencies were telling them what was in store. Uh, Zelensky was telling the administration what was in store and the Biden administration did not respond. And when you talk about putting forward markers, uh, that was the ideal time to do it in, in the fall uh, of uh, 2021. Instead, this administration was was hamstrung and and slack jawed. Uh, they simply could not act, or for whatever reason, chose not to. You're thinking about both of those issues. Well, I, I think you're correct. I also think there was a, some denial going on in Ukraine. I don't think Zelensky actually believed uh, that that Putin would invade, and uh, and so that was a miscalculation. But uh, they they corrected that miscalculation quickly and and really rallied and in a, a very short period of time to, to defend themselves against mm -hmm. Russia. On the diplomatic front, you're, you're absolutely right, Lou. I mean, one of the things we needed to do was deter the Russians. I mean, the, the, the time to have stopped the war was before the war started. It's much more difficult to, to disengage, to get the parties to disengage, to have a peace process to, to end a war than it is to stop a war from starting. And, uh, you know, our, our friend Larry Kudlow and a good friend of yours and, and mine, I went on a show and, we, and Larry and I talked about this about a month before the invasion that one of the things that would have probably deterred the Russians or at least caused them great pause is if we came out and said, we are going to sanction the Russian Federation Central Bank, no transactions with the RF Central Bank whatsoever, oil and gas, no exclusions, uh, commodities, farm, farm equipment, farm, you know, agricultural products, all the things that Russia exports, everything is going to be sanctioned. That would have given the Russians pause. And, and yet, even now, Lou, a year into the invasion, we still haven't sanctioned the Russian Federation Central Bank on oil, gas, extraction, minerals, uh, agricultural products. So if you're not going to sanction the Russians on the things they actually sell, 
there's no penalty. And, and, and that was a chance to, to get ahead of this thing. Uh, and, and yet we didn't do it because there was a, a fear. And, and again, I don't think this is necessarily Jake Sullivan or even Tony Blinken, but I think there are folks in the Biden administration that, that are so afraid of, quote, provoking Putin or provoking G. Uh, this is a uh, an, an Obama administration mantra, you know, don't provoke our adversaries because then they might do something terrible to us. The problem is, is if you're if you're weak, that's what's provocative. That that's what causes them to think that they can they can make a move. And so strength deters it. We didn't show any strength before the invasion. We didn't lay out what the sanctions would be. And even now, a year into the invasion, you know, we, we've we've been gone, gone very light on the sanctions. In fact, what what was concerning not too long ago, Lou, there was a Chinese think tank that did a, a study because they were trying to figure what, what will happen if we go into Taiwan, what will the sanctions be? And as part of their study, they, they found out that Putin personally and Russia as a nation has actually made money on the Ukraine invasion because of the run-up in oil prices. So notwithstanding the sanctions that have been placed on the Russian Federation, and they are significant, but they're half measures, notwithstanding those sanctions, Russia has actually done well and Putin has actually increased his personal net worth based on his purported 10% only, you know, holdings in, in every oil deal that takes place as a result of the war. So there's been no deterrence, at least on the economic front, with the Russians. And, and that's sending a message to the Chinese, which has a much bigger, China has a much bigger economy than Russia, is maybe if they invade Taiwan, maybe they'll just get the half measure sanctions as well, and it won't really affect them, and they can accomplish their goals without too much pain. And, and again, that that that's... Uh, that's worrisome. It is worrisome. And I think it's also perhaps uh, some on the left would say this is unfair. But this is Biden's war in Ukraine because Biden had a, almost a six month run up in which he could have acted to prevent it. Uh, this is also a war uh, as, as, you're, as you're depicting it that uh, has been a half measure uh, in response on the part of the United States. Uh, at every point, their their recalcitrance, their reluctance uh, to take a step, a firm step uh, in blocking uh, Putin's aspirations and ambitions to take over Ukraine, it became all the more difficult with each succeeding month to to stop this. And now we are here uh, more than a year from the time they invaded, and Russia has suffered immense uh, immense casualties by all all reckonings and at the same time have no strategy to win other than a full-on frontal uh, war of attrition that is costing Russia even more dearly. Where does Putin go from here now? Well, look, I think Putin's a student of history, and uh, you know his history doesn't always repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I, I think Putin's hoping that history rhymes here, that when you think about the, the great wars that Russia has been involved in uh, over the centuries, whether it was Sweden invading the Kingdom of Sweden when it was at the apex of its power, Napoleon, uh, Hitler with Germany, the Russians always suffered grievous defeats early on. And, and that certainly has been the case with the Ukraine. I mean, the, the, the entire <clears throat> Russian conventional force, uh, is, its high-end sophisticated military has been wiped out. I mean, it's paratroopers, it's Spetnaz forces, it's uh, high-end armor. Uh, they've lost over 100,000 men. I mean, Russia today, Lou, is really not even a conventional threat to Europe anymore. I mean, they're still a great nuclear threat, so don't get me wrong that they're not a, and, and as a result, remain a, a great power because of their four or 5,000 nuclear weapons. But 
on, on the conventional front, they're no longer a threat to Poland and won't be for five or 10 years. And, and so that's good for NATO and it's good for the West. And ultimately that will allow us to move our uh, many of our troops, which we try to do in the Trump administration, and hopefully the next Republican, you know, Cong uh, Congress and uh, and President will do this. We can move more of our troops to places like Hawaii and the Aleutian Islands and Palau and Micronesia and Guam to, to protect ourselves against the Chinese because the Russian threat has been, at least a conventional threat, has been, you know, that drastically reduced because of this war in Ukraine. So on that, on that front, it was a big miscalculation for for Putin and Xi can't be happy about it, uh, knowing, knowing how this is going to play out. But, but getting to your bigger question, uh, so so I think in some ways, you know, I, I kind of think about uh, the the old stories about Augustus walking around after the Teutonburg Forest massacre of the legions, and he is, it was reported to walk around his palace saying, "Far as far as you know, where are my legions?" And you wonder if Putin's doing the same thing in his palaces in uh, in the Kremlin or down in, in Sochi, but. Going to your, your, your second question, how does it end? Right now, Putin thinks he can do what Russian leaders have done in the past, and that's just throw men and materiel into the meat grinder. But it's the, you know, I mean, we have to understand that these these Russians, these conscripts, I mean, my heart goes out to them. They're, they're getting used as cannon fodder uh, for, for Putin's ambitions to be Peter the Great. And, you know, the, the, these poor Russian kids who are 17, 18, 19 years old, they're getting two or three months of training. And they're getting fed into a, a warfare situation where the Ukrainians have become very hardened, very well trained, uh, very efficient at, at uh, fighting. And these kids are getting wiped out by Putin. But, I, you know, he's got a, a much bigger supply of them than Ukraine does. He's got about 140 to 150 million people. You know, Ukraine's somewhere between 35 and 40 million people. So uh, I think he's going to keep feeding folks into the meat grinder until he realizes that strategy that doesn't work and that hopefully Ukraine can hang on until Putin comes to the realization that that you know his the, the, the old Russian way of warfare is not going to work here and, and he's got to come to the table and, and come to a resolution and the the intelligence assessments that that we hear about that Ukraine has lost through either casualties to this war or displacement of its citizens, uh, somewhere, anywhere from uh, 10 to 15 million Ukrainians have been displaced. And the numbers that we're hearing about the casualties, uh, those killed in action, uh, don't add up uh, in, in point of fact. And understandably, the Ukrainians don't want us to know those. But the, the human cost here has been devastating to Ukraine by any measure. Uh, the same is true of Russia. Yet the Ukrainians fight on, and every military expert I've talked with was just stupefied when suddenly we were talking about six months uh, into the war, and the Ukrainians were uh, having their way with the, before this war, the much feared and much respected Russian military. They looked like a paper tiger uh, in every sense. And I would think that she has to be wondering if he is not managing a paper tiger himself because his troops haven't been tested. Ours have, under, uh, unfortunately, uh, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iraq, uh, in the Persian Gulf War. Uh, your thoughts on the capacity of, of China and the willingness of Xi to support his so-called strategic partner who looks like an inept fool right now militarily. Well, look, well, that, that's a terrific insight that most folks ha haven't uh, gained from this. And 
That is, how, how strong is the Chinese army? Now, let me go back to the Russian army for a moment. When I was in office as President Trump's national security advisor, we were briefed on the, the, the tremendous capacity and ability of the Russian army, that Putin had, had modernized uh, the Russian forces, that they'd slimmed it down, and, and they had 250 to 300,000 frontline troops that were much like the U.S. Marine Corps, very efficient. And look, there was some evidence for that because the Russians had been successful in Georgia. They'd been successful in the, in the first Ukraine operation that, where they took parts of Donbass and Crimea. They'd been successful in Syria. And so there was this feeling that the Russians were state-of-the-art. And what we found out is beyond you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the shock troops and, and the, the, the special operators that were used in some of those operations, there really was not a lot of depth to the Russian army. And, and most of that was because of corruption. I mean, we had, you know, Russian trucks that the, the tires were flat and couldn't, you know, and were uh, crumbling un, under the weight of the trucks. The GPS systems had all been ripped out of the uh, uh, the, the tanks and the airplanes and, and had been, you know, sold off. The, uh, you know, the Russian units were undermanned. If, if they had a unit that was supposed to have a thousand soldiers, it might have 500 soldiers because the, the commander and the sergeant major of the unit we're, we're reporting a thousand soldiers, getting payroll for a thousand soldiers, but only paying five hundred, pocketing the rest and skimming it, which is a, you know, that's an old uh, army trick going back to the Roman times. So you know, it was a, it's a very corrupt society, and the and the, the military re reflected the corruption. We just didn't see it. And so when you you bring up the point about she and the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, they haven't fired a shot in anger since 1978 in the the Vietnam conflict, the border conflict, and. Uh, that didn't go very well for the Chinese, and I guess we shouldn't take too much pleasure, you know, out of that because it didn't go very well for us in Vietnam either. But right. the point is that the Chinese were looking at the Russians as the state-of-the-art force, and over the past five to ten years, they've been doing these massive military exercises with the Russians, learning Russian techniques, tactics, procedures, and hoping that that would give them an edge in a future conflict because that that was how they were going to get the the experience that you noted correctly that they don't have. Uh, compared to the U.S., which has been in Somalia and in the Sahel and Iraq and Afghanistan and and on the front lines in Europe, uh, highly skilled soldiers, airmen, Marines, sailors, Coast Guardmen uh, in our forces. And so I think the Chinese were hoping that the Russians would give them the edge. I think Xi's looking at the war, as you point out, and saying, hey, the Russians aren't doing too well. We've we've incorporated their their tactics. You know, are we going to do any better with their tactics than they're doing? And then number two on that point is most of the, the Chinese equipment, not all of it, but like some of it's been stolen and copied from us, but most of it is either former Soviet or, or Russian designed equipment. Uh, in some cases, the, the Chinese stole it from the Russians, just like they stole from us. But, you know, they've got to be wondering, looking at that, that kit that's not performing very well versus, you know, modern Western weaponry and wondering not only are their soldiers well trained, is their equipment going to work? And uh, so I, I think in some ways that this invasion has, has probably given G a little bit of pause. Uh, and he's, he's wondering, as you, you suggest, how will his forces perform under similar circumstances? Now, hopefully the Taiwanese have the backbone that the, uh, that the Ukrainians have shown. I think they do because I think they saw what happened to, to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and the Tibetans and the Hong Kongers and are kind of realizing at this point that there is no one country, two systems. If the Chinese take over, it's curtains for us, so we're going to have to fight. So hopefully they show the same panache and boldness and, and will that the, the Ukrainians are showing if they are attacked by the Chinese. Give us, a, if you will, your, your perspective on U.S. readiness, U.S. forces, U.S. technology. 
and capability for what uh, 25 years the army uh, the u.s uh, military operating under uh, the petraeus doctrine of the long war which is uh, to me has always been a, a, a mindless uh, ironic doctrine to to chisel in granite uh, for the u.s military because uh, it, you don't have to be much above a, a you know a, a corporal uh, in any one of the branches to know that the longer you fight, uh, the better the odds are for your opponent. Why in the world we chose that, I think is pretty clearly it's a mistake now, but why is something that I think probably should be studied at all the academies. Your sense of the strategy that's in place right now for US, the US military, uh, obviously the controversies in the defense part, but the entire military over the woke policies, the mindless nonsense that has been spewed by the left and uh, inculcated uh, into, of all places, the United States military. Uh, the inability to recruit and meet recruitment goals for all of the branches. Uh, it's, it's, to me, deeply disturbing. Your thoughts? Well, look, the, the, the wokeness thing is really unfortunate. I mean, I've talked to commanders who say they're spending more time on training on, on HR videos and, uh, you know, social justice type things than they are training on their, their soldiers on how to shoot their weapons and how to use their systems. And, and that's ridiculous. We, we, we just can't have that in the military. We have to understand the purpose of the military. And this is not politically correct. It's to kill people and break things in the defense of our country. And, and, and Hopefully, it's, you have a strong enough military, and this is the old Reagan doctrine of peace through strength. It was George Washington's doctrine: is that your military is so strong that your adversaries don't don't attack you. And that's why in, in, in the Reagan years we didn't have a new war, Louis, as you recall. We had the grenade operation, which was really kind of a, a you know an expanded hostage rescue operation for the, the medical students in Grenada. But but we didn't have a major war under Reagan. You know what the next who the next president was where we didn't have a major war. Donald J. Trump, because we, our adversaries understood that, that we wouldn't countenance uh, nonsense, but we also started rebuilding the military. The, the The biggest thing that I found as national security advisor, even coming in two years into the administration, two years plus in the administration, is the damage that was done during the Obama years with defense sequestration. It, it wasn't a decimation. That would have been great because that would have only implied a 10% cut in our military. Our, our, our stocks, our supplies, our ammunition, our missiles, uh, our, our reserves were, were desperately low. And it took really four years of the Trump administration just to rebuild our, our military to where it was and where it needed to be to defend our country and so that our warfighters could defend themselves. And then there were things like hypersonics. We, we were the world leader in hypersonics. These are missiles that go Mach 5 plus, really no defense to them, uh, although we're, we're developing some, some you know, very ingenious ways to deal with them. But during during the Obama years and and the early part of the Trump years, the the Russians and Chinese raced ahead of us. They they stole our technology. Some of it they got just for free from academic papers here. They figured out how to build hypersonics and they started deploying them. And my number one priority as national security advisor was to make sure that we had hypersonics to to fight a, a modern war, uh, especially against the Chinese and the Russians. And we moved out very quickly. There was some opposition with the Office of the Secretary of Defense who didn't understand the issue and didn't understand the, what, what an advantage our opponents had achieved during the eight years of Obama and a, a couple of years of, of the early part of the Trump administration where we, we weren't focused on that. But we're now deploying this year and next year 
the hypersonics, Air Force, Army, Navy are all deploying hypersonic weapon systems that will deter the Chinese from using theirs against us because we'll, we'll return it in kind. So, so again, rebuilding the military and putting ourselves in a position to, to defend ourselves and, and to inflict damage and, and kill our adversaries if they're foolish enough to attack America is, is absolutely critical. And, and you know, I'm glad to see that most of the programs remained in place during the, the Biden administration. We've had a big plus up, uh, not as big as you'd want it to be because of inflation as a terrible tax. You know, it's a 10% immediate cut on the defense budget, but we had a plus up this year with the NDAA with, and, and the Republicans in the House, I think, are committed to, to making sure that goes forward. So I think our readiness is pretty good now, Lou. I mean, our technology is terrific. I wouldn't trade our technology for, for the Chinese technology or Russian technology any day. But what we are seeing is where we used to have a 10 or 15 or 20 year lead on technology against the Chinese, that's shrunk to two, three, four, five years. So the Chinese are catching up, they're catching up fast. And, and the other thing that they have, Lou, which we, which we don't have, and you, you pointed this out with the recruitment front, but it's not just soldiers and sailors. We don't have the warships we need. We need a 355 ship Navy minimum. And, and we're at about 287. Uh, we've got we can't get we can't maintain our ships. The Navy's trying to retire ships that are have lots of ship life left in them because we can't maintain them and we can't we can't crew them. And, and at some point, no matter how good our technology is and how great our tactics are and how spirited our, our fighting men and women are, and they're, they're, I, I truly believe they're the best in the world. But uh, Stalin used to say quantity has a quality all of its own, and our adversaries, especially the Chinese, have a tremendous quantitative advantage over us. And, and no matter how good we are, at some point we can be overwhelmed by quantity if we don't stay stay in the game. And so we need to rebuild, continue to rebuild the military. We need it. We need a 355 ship Navy, not to keep the global commons open and not to be the world's policeman, but to defend America and our key allies, and and, our, and defend our way of life. Because the Chinese are, are on their way to a 500 ship Navy, and uh, they they can be a little ahead of us, and we can we can narrow that gap with with excellent tactics and and better tech. But at some point, we, you know, there, there's a potential for us being overwhelmed and we can never have that happen. And then the last thing on the, on the wokeness thing, it's just there's no place for that in the military. You know, we I've got I've got two daughters who are officers in the in the Army, and the Air Force. I could be more proud of them. But but most of the folks who are coming into the military, they're, they're men and they're young men and uh, they're from rural America. They're African-Americans from the inner cities. They're uh, Hispanic Americans, uh, Asian-American men. These guys aren't woke. They're they're going to the military because they want to defend our country. They want to defend our way of life. They're tough, and they're, they 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 better be tough because they're going to have to, you know, defeat our adversaries, and and turning them into social justice warriors instead of war fighters is is not a good idea for the country, whatever your politics are. Yeah, not a good idea, but it is also the uh, the policy right now of the Biden administration. The Biden Defense uh, Department, the civilian leadership are absolutely committed to it. Uh, we listened to General Milley, uh, the senior advisor to the president of the United States from the U.S. military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he's talking blithering nonsense. He is a he is a clown in the eyes of the very people that he is leading. They are not going to say that, but I will. Uh, I haven't met a single person from the U.S. military or talked with them who does not think that this is an, a, a, the senior leadership of the military are, are just driving uh, our military uh, to a place that they do not want to go and the nation cannot afford the journey uh, any further. Uh, 
so I, I I cheer you for your assessment, and I just wish, uh, frankly, that we were talking in the second term of uh, the Trump administration instead of waiting the the next term in 2024. I wonder as we as we look at this uh, in terms of hypersonic uh, weaponry, uh, it is one of the fastest turns uh, I've ever seen. Uh, it it does my heart good to see what we were able to accomplish in this country uh, in the span of about three years. Uh, now with this new stealth bomber uh, that is in prototype, uh, with a capacity of ten times the speed of sound a Mach 10 hypersonic aircraft. It is stunning to contemplate. Uh, and I don't know the level of production that we'll be able to reach uh, in the near horizon, but it is, uh, it's is—it's—it's nice to see us back in the lead uh, on a, such an important front as uh, the Air Force. Well, we, we did it quickly, Lou. It, it, was, uh, it was my number one defense priority as National Security Advisor was to get our hypersonic uh, program uh, back in shape and 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 to get the weapons deployed not just to do the research not to have the exquisite technology but not not be able to give our warfighters the tools they needed and and to their credit the uh once the president you, you may recall this uh, I, I briefed the president on this we were getting pushback from dod and 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 some folks that uh that did, just didn't think it was important and uh and the president came out one of the rallies and talked about his super duper missiles and uh he, he got a lot of blowback for talking about his super duper missiles, but uh, he was referring to hypersonics, and, and, and that really got the uh, got the attention of folks. And they understood the commander in chief wanted this done. And and again, we've got great scientists, we've got uh, uh, great uh, engineers, and and we turned it around. And we've got we've got a, not just one, but about three or four different programs on the hypersonics that are coming out. And then you're referring to a couple of things in the Air Force. Our Air Force fleet is uh, is really a uh, in bad shape now. It's not that it's not, it's better than our adversaries, but we don't have enough aircraft and the, the age of the aircraft, except for the F-35 and the F-22 is really getting up there. And our maintainers have done a super job keeping the B-52s flying, the, F-14, or the F-15s and 16s and 18s. Uh, but we need, we need to get new modern aircraft and, uh, and we're gonna have some rolling out soon. The, the B-21 Raider from Northrop, which is gonna replace right. the B-2 and the B-52. If we buy it in quantity, we need a hundred of them, Lou. I, I hope that the the program doesn't get cut, cut, and we end up buying twenty or twenty-two or twenty-four, like we did with the the B two bomber. But right. that's a terrific aircraft. It's on budget. It's on time. It's rolling out. That's going to give our pilots uh, a tremendous advantage and keep our nuclear triad really, really strong and modern. And then you were referring to the the NAGAD, the next generation air defense fighter, and 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 some some of the abilities it's going to have. Our science fiction. I mean, you you know, you can't believe it. It's going to have drones flying with it as wingmen. It's going to. I don't want to be careful about what I say. I'll just talk about what's been in popular mechanics. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, put it's going to have both uh, manned and unmanned capabilities. It's 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 fast. It's going to be. Uh, it's, it's stealthy. Uh, it's going to have sensor platforms that that you know can see the entire battlefield for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So so we're doing some amazing things as a country. But the key is we've got to make sure we get them deployed. We can't just have them on the drawing board. We, we, we've got to get them built and deployed and get them to our pilots, our, our great you know, Air Force pilots and Navy pilots, and get them what they need so they can get out and defend ourselves, themselves, our, our country, and, and defeat our adversaries. And Because trust me, the Chinese, and they're clever, they're hardworking as, as can be, they, they're relentless, 
they're on us on all fronts. And, and one of the fronts they're on us is uh, on new weapons development. They, they don't sleep. And so we, we've got to stay ahead of them and we, we're going to have to redouble our efforts to do so. To that point, you were talking about the, 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 the gap between the United States and communist China has been went down to something like two to three years. Uh, and the fact is they're stealing hundreds of billions of dollars a year from us. Uh, they have closed that gap by stealth, by spying, uh, thievery, uh, whatever ingenious way they can getting our intellectual capital, whether it comes from the private sector or from the U.S. military. We, it seems, have done absolutely nothing. I mean, we could invest trillions, but as we're going to continue to simply hand it over to the thieving Chinese, uh, we're never going to have the adequate uh, deterrence power that we should. Well, Lou, you make a great point, and it's a, a point that FBI Director Chris Ray made uh, in a speech that we, we had a series of four speeches that you recall, Mike Pompeo, myself, Bill Barr, and, and Chris Ray, gave a series of speeches in the summer of 2020 to try and wake the American people up to the threat that was coming at us from the Chinese. And we just took a different topic. Chris Ray's topic was this, was exactly what you're talking about, the theft of our IP, the theft of our inventions. And it's not just on the military front, it's on the commercial front. And Chris Ray said it was the biggest transfer of wealth in human history. It is the theft of, of our IP, our intellectual property, our inventions from America and taken to China. And it's so pernicious, Lou, because I mean, think about this. You're, you're an inventor. You invent something here. You get a patent or you, you've got it. You keep it as a trade secret. The Chinese steal it. So in the first instance, you're losing the, the licensing fees, the revenue from your invention, the, the fruits of your labor. But then the Chinese take it and they, they start manufacturing it cheaper in China than we're selling it here. And they dump it here and they put your business out of business. And so now your business has gone under and the Chinese are the only ones manufacturing the item. Uh, and, and they've got a monopoly and it's coming and we're dependent on China for something that was now that was invented in America. I mean, this, this is how they hollowed out the, the Midwest of our country. This is how they took our manufacturing and, and, and carted it off, just like like the Romans carting, you know, uh, loot from Dacia after the invasion and bringing it back to Rome. That's basically what the Chinese have done to us. But they've done it using cyber and and that sort of thing and, and, and dishonesty and theft and, and spying. Now, one of the things that, that we did, and Bill Barr did this in the Trump administration, is he set up a special unit in the in the DOJ uh, and the FBI to go after Chinese espionage, especially on the industrial front. Unfortunately, the Biden administration shut it down uh, when they got here and said it was racist and, and unfairly targeted Chinese professors and Chinese students and that sort of thing. Uh, and again, it, it's not racist. It's not anti-Chinese. We love the Chinese. We've got, they're the greatest immigrants in the world here. Uh, and they, they contributed massively. We love the Chinese people. I mean, they're, they're great. What we don't like is the Chinese Communist Party that's engaged in this espionage and intellectual property theft. And we've got to use every tool we've got, including the FBI and the DOJ, to root that out and stop it and protect ourselves and maintain our, our qualitative advantage. Because heaven help us if we don't. We've seen I, what they do. We've seen what they do to people that they sub subjugate. We've seen how it worked in Tibet and Hong Kong and, and Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. We don't want to be those people. Uh, we have never seen an experiment with communism, Marxism of any kind to succeed, uh, except in China because of uh, really the the, the perception of, of Americans, uh, American leadership. 
the mindlessness of allowing someone to call us uh, racist because we do not want communists stealing our technology, our intellectual property, uh, is, is as absurd as saying that we are racist because we do not want people entering this country from Mexico who are being sent here by the Mexican drug cartels and with them sex trafficking, uh, human smuggling, uh, as well as uh, tons of deadly drugs that are killing more than 100,000 Americans every year. Yet we have a president who's focused on Ukraine, but won't in any way protect the southern border. I have never seen in my life, nor have I ever read about an American president who is as imperial uh, and imperious uh, and absolutely delusional about his powers to the point that he could think that an American president can act as he is here. And without protests from the Republican Party, without protests from his own party, and in fact, instead, uh, conformity and unity around him to do exactly as he pleases. And he looks perfectly aligned with the Marxist Dems, whether they be in China, uh, whether they be in Venezuela. Your thoughts? Well, look, it, it's when you don't have a media that, that's going to question the presidency. When the fourth estate, you know, there, there are folks like you, Lou, and others, and and uh, you've got to have a press that keeps the administration honest. But unfortunately, we do not have a mainstream press any longer that, that keeps the administration honest. If if they're Democrats, and and it's it's we've got a regime media, and you know that, that that's really unfortunate. So that that hurts, and and that's actually bad for the president. I mean, they may not. They, they, I'm sure they like it. But you know, when, when you don't have any any anyone questioning what you're doing, you know, you, you you can make mistakes, and and so it's not good for the president. The second thing is the Democrats have total party unity, and they 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 don't you know put up with any nonsense from anybody in the party who's going to dissent on anything, whether it's abortion or immigration or you know, manufacturing, whatever. Uh, on our Republican side, we're not we're not as well organized, and we're not uh, we don't have the party discipline that the Democrats have, and we need to. So we need more Republicans because we're always going to have folks either on the the far right or the far left of the party that are going to, you know, get off the you know the train and 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 not uh, not help. So we need a big Republican majority. We don't have that now. We're going to need to get it in twenty twenty four. You know, when it comes to this whole issue of Ukraine and the border, you know, I understand that the concern and then some of my friends on the uh, on our side on the the, the the you know make America great again or the, the America first peace through strength world. Say well, why are we why are we fighting for Ukraine's borders and giving them what they need and leaving our borders open? But it's not an either or decision, Lou. Because here's the problem: that this administration has decided that the southern border is not a problem; it's not an issue, and they're welcoming these illegal aliens in as as you know as fast as they can come. And it, it undermines American jobs, but it also undermines our security because look, we all came here as immigrants. I'm I'm Irish American. People come here for better jobs and a better life. But with this wide open border, as you point out, we've got these fentanyl traffickers. And keep in mind, the fentanyl originates, the, the precursor drugs originate in China. I mean, this is China declaring war on us, sending the fentanyl into Mexico and then having it smuggled into the U.S., you know, finished off as a finished product and smuggled into the U.S. But it's, it's the smuggling of antiquities. It's the smuggling of people. It's sex trafficking. It's labor trafficking. Uh, it, it's despicable what's happening. And, and the border is wide open. But... Look, it doesn't. We, we can still help the Ukrainians and keep the border secure. Uh, it's not an either or point. But but this administration, even if we shut down the, our, our aid to Ukraine, they're still going to leave the border open. The only way we're going to get the border closed 
and get border security for this country is to elect a Republican House and Senate in 2024 and a Republican president. I mean, that, 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 that's just the, the fact of the matter. If it doesn't happen, the border is going to remain open. That's And it is what it is. And as you point out, there are great powers in the presidency. Uh, the president can be checked by the media. He can be checked by the the Supreme Court and by the, the, the court system. And some of that's happening, but that takes time. And so in, in the meantime, we've got a president who's, who's you know, they, they complain when President Trump signed executive orders or President Bush signed executive orders. But I think we've had more executive orders by this administration than we've ever seen in history. So uh, look, our, our folks on our side need to, to wake up and realize that this is a time to roll up our sleeves and elect Republicans in 2024 if we want real change in the country. I, I would absolutely uh, second your your statement, uh, affirm it. Uh, so long as uh, Republicans are America first, they want to make America great. Uh, but we cannot afford, uh, frankly, any more of the so-called liberal Republican, the rhinos who have been as devastating as they could possibly be. And I can give everyone names if they want. Uh, I think uh, everyone knows uh, who I'm speaking of, and many of them are in the U.S. Senate. In fact, one, uh, the minority leader there. Inexcusable, they hamstrung a House that should have had control of their budget for this fiscal year, but did not because of the omnibus bill that was supported by the liberal Republicans of the Senate, much to their shame and, and discredit. Uh, we always give our guests uh, here, uh, Robert, uh, full opportunity for the last word. We even insist on it. So if you would, uh, Mr. Ambassador, I want to just say as we go into this, uh, it's great to have you with us. I've enjoyed our talk immensely. I know the audience has as well. Uh, if you will, your concluding thoughts. Well, first of all, Lou, thanks again for having me on. And uh, you've been in this fight for a long time. I've been a big fan uh, long before I was in government watching you on watching your show on TV and uh, for for years and years and years. So so thanks for staying in the fight and and, and the, the podcast is great. Look, I want to I want to end with the you know there, there's a lot of bad news out there. We can talk about Iran, we can talk about Russia and China, and we face a lot of threats as a as a country. But look, I'm still very optimistic about America and our future and our our role in the world. I think Ronald Reagan had it right when he said we're the the last best hope of mankind, and I kind of expand that to womankind on Earth, and and we need to be that shining city on the hill. We need to be a beacon to the Chinese people that they can. They can look to us just like the, the Soviet citizens looked at us and, and saw a brighter future over the seas and and that the communism didn't have to be there and totalitarianism didn't have to be their way of life. Uh, so, so I, you know, I, I would never bet against America. I think we're going to do great, but we have to roll up our sleeves and we have to we have to win and we have to make sure that our values and, and rebuilding our military and peace or strength, at least the national security front and ending the wokeism and, and division in this country. Uh, that's being spewed by the left uh, happens sooner rather than later, but but if we can get things right uh, in this country, we can we can have a, a really glorious future, and I, I think our best days are ahead of us. But uh, this this coming election in twenty twenty four is going to be critical, and we've got to we've got to win it and uh, and, and get back to the, the Reagan Trump doctrines of uh, peace for strength and America first. And if we do, uh, not only will America be safer and secure, more secure and, and freer, but the entire world will be. And uh, and we'll give these dictators, uh, the Xi Jinping's and Vladimir Putin's and Ayatollah's, a, uh, we'll, we'll teach them a lesson. And, uh, and and the lesson is that freedom works, and America is a you know is going to remain the leader of the free world. And uh, we're going to do it in a way that uh, that we, we're not going to be the policemen of the world. We're not going to let people take a free ride, but we're going to lead our allies. We're going to contribute 
and we're going to ask them to contribute greatly to, to make sure that the world stays free and our way of life is protected. And uh, so, so thanks for having me on, Lou, and uh, God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Thanks so much, Mr. Ambassador. We appreciate it. God bless you as well. Ambassador Robert O'Brien, great American. And thank you, everybody, for being with us today. Please follow me on Truth Social and Twitter at Lou Dobbs. That's at Lou Dobbs on Truth Social and Twitter. Here tomorrow, coincidentally, our guest will be Deba Nunes, CEO of Trump Media and Technology Group, which includes Truth Social and Rumble. Please join us here tomorrow. Till then, thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 